Hey everyone, and welcome to Bury the Hatchet. I'm your host, Brian Ensign. You know, tackling touchy subjects in the right way is a special skill, and frankly, not everybody has it. But the inability to understand people we disagree with is tearing apart our communities, our friendships, and our families. But we can do better. We must do better. If you're ready to talk about hard things without the hard feelings, join me as we rediscover the lost arts of listening and reconciliation. Join me as we learn to bury the hatchet. Hello, hello, hello again, everybody, and welcome to episode six of Bury the Hatchet. If this is your first episode, uh, you're joining us here for the first time, welcome. If you are coming back, um, then I don't need to tell you that uh, it's been quite a quite an unexpectedly long break um, between this episode and, uh, and the last one that uh, that I was able to make. And I apologize for the long delay. I'll, I'll simply say by by way of explanation, uh, even if it's not a good excuse, um, we've had a lot going on in our family um, the last uh, several months. Uh, we we moved to a new city. Uh, I, I started a new semester. My wife is a teacher. She started a new semester. Uh, our children started a new daycare, and of course, everything with uh, with COVID nineteen going on. There's just it, it's been hard for me to find the time to do this. So I apologize for that, uh, and I owe a special apology to my guests today, um, Zach and Andre, for letting your interviews sit on my hard drive for so long before finally getting them out here. So um, I apologize to you too, um, uh, but I, I hope that uh, getting your getting your message out uh, is, is worth it, even if it's later than, uh, than any of us anticipated. So uh, with that out of the way, let's let's dive right into it. If you're new here, uh, if this is your first time listening to Bury the Hatchet, um, what we are all about is understanding people, uh, even and especially the people with whom we disagree. Um, there is too much animosity in the world. There's too many people, uh, with something to say, and I think not enough who are willing to listen. So that's what we're all about is trying to, to bridge that gap and make, make bridges of common understanding, not necessarily agreement, but at least getting to the point where, uh, where we can understand each other again, and we don't have to see each other as enemies, even if we disagree. Before we dive into uh, into my my interviews with our guests today, uh, you, you know I've I've been thinking as I was as I was preparing this episode, I, I've thought a lot about those uh, those Rorschach tests or the ink blot tests that uh, they used to do. I don't know if they still use them. I'm I'm not at all a psychologist, but uh, if if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's uh they're just little they they look like just blots of ink on a piece of paper, um, and they don't really seem to have any particular form or shape or reason to them. They're just supposed to be kind of random shapes. And uh, the person administering the test will ask you, you know, what do you see here? What do you see in this? Sort of like looking at the clouds, you know, what do you, what do you see? What do you see in the clouds kind of a thing? And the idea is that what you see in these random ink blots is supposed to be a reflection of what's going on in your head, your mental or emotional state or, or what have you. Like I said, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know if they still use these, but you know, I, I think there is sort of 
a, a fundamental truth lying at the at the root of this this idea, which is that sometimes in life, our our stickiest arguments uh, come not necessarily from a disagreement on facts or the way things are, but on our own personal angle or our group angle um, and how we view the things that are in front of it. So you and somebody else can be looking at the exact same situation. And because of what's going on in your own head or your own heart, you can see the situation differently. Uh, I had an example of this just recently in a, in one of my classes, actually. I'm, I'm studying engineering. Um, and one of the classes that I was taking this last semester was on design theory, which is basically given a certain problem, um, you know, you want to be able to to choose a solution that is going to be the optimal solution. So you don't you don't just want something that will work, but you want it to be the best possible solution given the the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and so this particular problem that that reminded me of this was uh, our, our professor gave us this situation. It was a it was a, a mechanical engineer designing a a table. Uh, and he was designing it for an artist, uh, a furniture designer, really famous furniture designer who I don't even remember who this guy is. But he had come to him and said, I want a table that can do this. I want it to be really thin. Um, that's just sort of the aesthetic that I'm going for. And can you tell me what I should make it out of? So the mechanical engineer um, and we went through the same problem, um, you know, all the optimization. We want to make sure the leg is strong enough to bear the weight and so it doesn't buckle or bend or anything like that. And the material that we came up with for our optimal solution was not the one that the artist finally chose to go with. And the reason for that is we were looking at it from an engineering perspective. You know, what's the what's the lowest weight and the lowest cost that you can get and still meet the strength requirements of the leg? And the artist is thinking, well, what's going to look the best? You know, so I mean, things like that, the the questions that you choose to ask sometimes and the way that you look at a problem is going to influence the the outcome. And I think this is a wonderful thing. Um, every human being has a unique set of experiences, beliefs and emotional triggers that form almost like your own personal language, a language that you use to digest and understand new information and new experiences. And this uniqueness is, in my view, a beautiful thing. It's responsible for the enormous diversity of thought that allows us to encounter and consider ideas that we would never think of on our own. But it's that diversity of thought that I think is one of the great strengths of humanity is that we're not all the same and we don't all think the same way and we don't all see situations and problems through the same lens. And it's because of that that although one particular person might be limited in his or her knowledge or viewpoints, all of us together can encompass a wide range of thought patterns and knowledge and experiences and different ways to solve problems. And so together, we do have access to an enormous diversity of thought. But that can lead to friction and animosity if we don't handle it well. Uh, have you ever been in a conversation or even a heated argument that went nowhere, and it seemed like even though you and the person you were talking with, you both, you, you were nominally speaking the same language and you knew all the words that the other person was using, but somehow, it still didn't seem like you were even speaking the same language. 
like like i mean this happens in in my family sometimes because some of us speak mainly from the heart and you know kind of what we feel about a situation and others will speak mostly from the mind what we think about it which seems to make the most sense and if we're not careful we just kind of talk past each other and we're really having two different monologues in front of each other instead of really communicating because the mind and the heart are different right and sometimes what what your mind says the heart will say something else and you know that disagreement kind of happens all the time but i think that we make our best decisions when we use those two in harmony with each other when you make decisions in harmony with both what you think and what you feel and in the same way i think our relationships our interpersonal relationships and our communities are at their best and their strongest when we can figure out how to harmonize not just with the people who think the same way that we do but even and especially with those who th- see things very very differently when we can learn to appreciate and harmonize with others instead of just tolerating them or not tolerating them that's when i think we can unlock some real power um, in our in our collective thinking and problem solving so with that in mind let's tackle our topic for today which is economic freedom and i i knew from the beginning that this was going to be a tricky subject because as you'll see from my conversations with our guests we don't even all agree on what freedom means or what it looks like so rather than having me define what I think economic freedom is, let's get some input from our guests. First up, we have Zach from the Iowa State University chapter of Young Americans for Freedom. Hey, Zach Zelnio, the vice president of the uh, Iowa State chapter of the Young Americans for Freedom. Do I have that correct? You are the vice president of the of the club? Yes, sir, I am. Okay. Well, thank you for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. Um, so just tell us, first of all, real quick, what is Young Americans for Freedom? What's it about? And uh, how did you get involved? Yeah. Uh, well, Young Americans for Freedom is uh, essentially, it is a, a right-leaning club. Uh, it's made for uh, those who would, uh, consider themselves right of center. Um, we welcome anyone of any political affiliation, wherever you stand in the, uh, the political compass. Uh, the goal of the club uh, is to have uh, a free uh, place of ideas uh, to exchange, to discuss, to uh, express how you feel, uh, politically speaking, about what's going on uh, in the country, outside of the country, anything at all. We don't necessarily endorse candidates like uh, uh, CRs or college Dems would, uh, but we do uh, We do talk about candidates, uh, how we feel uh, about them, their policies, and, and the like. So where where are you from? What are you studying here? And what made you want to get involved in, in Young Americans for Freedom? Yeah, uh, well, I'm originally from uh, from the Quad Cities. I'm on the Illinois side of the river. Uh, I study English education. Uh, my goal is to teach high school. Uh, and I got into YAF uh, because just growing up in, uh, in Illinois, you can imagine it's one of the more liberal states we have in the country. Uh, so outside of my immediate family, I didn't really have um, a very welcoming place to uh, talk politics with, uh, just in terms of being accepted, someone looking me in the eye and saying, yeah, I, uh, I understand where you're coming from and I respect your views. Uh, and whether or not they disagreed with me or they agreed with me was regardless, I just wanted a place uh, here on campus uh, where I could uh, be free to do that. And so I found YAF and the rest is history. 
So I know you said at, at the beginning that YAF is sort of more of a more of a right leaning organization. Just for for my sake and for the sake of the audience, could you just define what that means to you, like right, left? Because I know that it they're, they're sort of nebulous terms. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what what do you mean when you say you know right or, or left politically? Certainly. Uh, so uh, by right leaning, I mean uh, generally speaking, uh, correlating more with conservative values. Uh, more with um, not necessarily all the time, but more with Republican values, um, uh, more uh, in support of free speech, in support of constitutionalism uh, and ideas that would align with that school of thought. OK, so what uh, I guess what what do you do as the vice president of the club? Sure. Uh, as vice president of the club, uh, I, along with our other three officers, uh, Chuck, Laura and uh, Logan, we will um, before each meeting. Uh, just throughout the week between um, our Mondays of meeting, we'll um, work on our, our Google Slides presentation of what we'll have for our, our, our yaffers, as we lovingly refer to them. Uh, anything going on in, uh, in the political arena, we'll put it in our slides, uh, prepare discussion topics, uh, and generally talk about uh, what sort of events we want to do. Uh, for example, uh, not long ago, uh, we sat down as our, uh, as our officers team and we, we tried to work out a way to get uh, Andrew Clavin here. Uh, and together, uh, by collaborating, working together, we will have that success. And I, I'm not familiar. Who is Andrew Clavin? Uh, Andrew Clavin is, uh, he runs a podcast. Uh, he's an author, uh, and he's also a huge contributor to The Daily Wire, uh, which, if you're not familiar with, is uh, Ben Shapiro's journalism uh, outlet source. So I know that you had said that, you know, where where you were growing up in, in Illinois, um, that you, you felt like you didn't really have a place where you could you could talk about things politically, or maybe it was just like your opinion wasn't welcome, maybe in your family. Could you tell me a little bit more about that, sort of your personal experience and kind of how that's affected you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so growing up, uh, I'm from Rock Island County. It is, uh, I think, one of the most liberal counties in Illinois. I think uh, the only one that comes to mind that outshines it is Cook County. Um, so most of my friends had uh, more left-leaning ideologies. And unfortunately, maybe it's uh, just where I'm from. Growing up with um, maybe uh, the not the same level of maturity as those at college would have, but my middle school and high school friends who would identify with uh, more liberalist ideas um, didn't really like hearing uh, things like, yeah, I think you should be allowed to say whatever you want, uh, as long as it's not infringing on the rights of your friends or people who live here. Or I think you should have the right to protect yourself with, you know, things that the government would allow their politicians to be protected with. I don't really like those ideas. Uh, no one was really willing to have a conversation outside of my family. My family is conservative, uh, so I was able to uh, sit down just every once in a while, have conversations with my father, um, once in a blue moon talk shop with my mom as well. Uh, but outside of that, outside of my folks, um, I didn't really know uh, too many people who would welcome the ideas that I had. Uh, so I wasn't sure growing up if I had unpopular ideas. Well, I was sure I had unpopular ideas, just at least where I was. Um, but if those were unacceptable ideas, uh, speaking in terms of the society I grew up in uh, or anything like that. So I was always a little self-conscious growing up. Uh, so coming from that, that's, that's sort of the context I have, politically speaking. Do you do you find that you have more of those opportunities here? Because obviously when you're, you know, if you're in in a setting with other YAF members, you know, you're with more like minded people. So <laughs> it would stand to reason that they'd be a little more accepting of some of those more conservative ideas. But do you do you feel like here at ISU you have opportunities to sort of, you know, express your ideas 
in the company of people who maybe disagree with them quite vehemently, but you're still, you still feel like your ideas are accepted and permissible. Do you, do you have those kinds of opportunities here? Uh, I think it depends on the person you're talking to here. Uh, at a college campus, uh, you can imagine not everything's going to be uniform, uh, especially in terms of how people react to things. Uh, so uh, I have plenty of friends who don't necessarily agree with me politically, but we can, you know, talk politics until we're blue in the face. and We can walk away knowing that, you know, we're friends. We can go get dinner later. Uh, and at the same time, I have places like YAF. Uh, I could go to a, a CR's meeting and we could talk shop about how we feel about what's going on politically. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there are certain places, uh, certain people uh, who I, I wouldn't necessarily be quite as comfortable speaking with, just not knowing what sort of temperament they have towards talking politics, talking religion. Uh, the general to the, that your your auntie and your uncle told you not to talk about at the dinner table when you were growing up. Could you tell us a little bit more? And you you sort of mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, Yaf embraces more of. You, what we would call conservative ideals. I know you mentioned a couple of constitutionalism, things like that. Could you, could you sort of elaborate on that a little more? Um, Cause I know, again, the word conservative itself is kind of nebulous. It means different things depending on who you're talking to. So what, for, for you, what are some of these conservative ideals that you have embraced and why do you embrace them? Of course. Um, so I suppose I can start with constitutionalism. Uh, I consider myself a pretty uh, big constitutionalist. Uh, just the idea that the Constitution uh, is something that you, you can work with, um, you can amend it, you can uh, take away things, you can have things on. Um, but that's not necessarily to say it's, it's some living piece of poetry that you can interpret any which way. It's not designed to be that, in my opinion. Uh, I don't believe the Founding Fathers created it that way. Um, I look at things like uh, the First and Second Amendment are the two big ones that come to my mind. Uh, freedom of speech is uh, referring to unadulterated speech for anyone at all. Uh, I don't believe uh, speaking uh, in terms of common law here that hate speech exists. There's there's no legally defined um, uh, definition of hate speech. Uh, as for the Second Amendment, there are plenty of people I've had conversations with uh, more uh, liberal minded friends who believe that the Second Amendment is meant to uh, allow our country to have a national guard or allow our country to have uh, armed forces. I don't believe that's true. Historically speaking, uh, and just the wording of the Constitution, I, I can't buy that. No one has sold me on it yet. Uh, so just the general idea that the Constitution stands and means what is written in it. And we as Americans have a responsibility to follow that, um, honor that. And if we cannot do either of those things, uh, fight to change that in a proper way. And then in terms of conservatism, um, traditionally speaking, um, not being uh, absolutely um, gung-ho about going out and doing any, uh, any old thing we can think to do to change our situation for the better. Take um, climate change, for example. Uh, there are a lot of uh, people on the left side of the aisle that love the Green New Deal. Uh, we think we should try it because it's better than nothing. Um, and I've always come from uh, the school of thought that um, anything is better than something is better than nothing. Um, but it's also important to think things through. You should always think before you speak and think before you act. So, uh, just that sense of conservatism and the respect that maybe we shouldn't jump to try anything we think of right off the bat, uh, is generally what I mean when I say conservative.
Okay. Um, now, with with those two, um, the two constitutional amendments that you mentioned, the mm-hmm. first, uh, which includes a lot of things, but you mentioned specifically freedom of speech, and then the second with, uh, you know, the right to bear arms. Sure. So it 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 sounds like if I'm understanding you correctly, you can you can tell me if I'm understanding you um, that you know you, you you understand that the the constitution is designed to be amended when mm-hmm. when necessary, but that. Until it's amended, it says what it says and needs to be followed. Absolutely. That, yeah. s- simply to preserve the rule of law. Am yeah. I understanding you correctly? Would you consider amending either of those two provisions in the Constitution? Um, me personally or just fundamentally speaking? Um, I mean, I well, I mean, you, you mentioned the Second Amendment. You said, well— you know, it says what it says, right to bear arms, right? Or the, or the First Amendment, you know, you have the freedom of speech. Um, and so, you know, simply to preserve the rule of law, you want to observe that because that's what the the founding document of our legal system says. Mm-hmm. But, if, you know, if, if somebody were, were to propose, OK, let's amend this, would you consider something like that? Or do you do you think that these are fundamentally good provisions? Uh, I believe personally that both the First and the Second Amendments and what they stand for uh, are fundamentally good. They're uh, I believe they're necessary. Uh, for securing our freedoms and liberties as Americans. Uh, Taking the Second Amendment, for example, I understand that there are uh, people who would say you have a right to bear arms, you have any weapon that the government is allowed to have themselves and use. Uh, And there are other people who uh, say, no, there should be, uh, there is no room for uh, any sort of firearm or a deadly weapon that has the capability of killing lots of people. And there are quite a few people that that fall in between that binary spectrum. I happen to fall uh, closer towards the former end, Um, and I believe that, um, personally speaking, the risks uh, don't justify um, the benefits of getting rid of the Second Amendment. I think, um, obviously, the the general arguments are school shootings are horrible, mass shootings are horrible. I agree. I think one is too many. However, looking at history, uh, history, I'm sorry, uh, at uh, what's happened in Venezuela, what's happened in Italy— uh, what happened in colonial America when we were trying to get ourselves out of uh, the British Empire? Uh, just it, It's happened in so many places. To say it wouldn't happen uh, in America, it being, uh, meaning uh, like a tyrannical uh, overthrow, uh, something that's designed to take away uh, American citizens' rights. I don't think getting rid of the Second Amendment uh, to potentially uh, stop crime from happening um, is worth getting rid of the freedom of over 300 million Americans. Uh, so personally, I, I don't think I would be able to support uh, an amendment uh, imposing restrictions on the right to bear arms. Uh, but fundamentally speaking, from a constitutionalist perspective, that doesn't necessarily mean that I am uh, against changing the Constitution in ways that would benefit Americans. And with uh, with the First Amendment, you know, you, you said that as, as you understand it, you have, you know, the, the fundamental right essentially to say whatever you would like. Mm-hmm. Um do you also believe that that comes along with certain responsibilities? Because obviously, you know, in the case of the Second Amendment, if if you're going to have the right to bear arms, you have the responsibility to not use that, you know, in a way that endangers other people. Oh, absolutely. Right. So what what sort of responsibilities do you feel like comes along with the right to speak freely? Um, well, I think uh, the right to speak, speak freely, excuse me, the right to speak freely uh, also comes with uh, the responsibility to speak freely. And I can explain what that means. Um, You have the right to say whatever is on your mind, whatever you want to say, um, excluding calls to action. Speech 
uh, as it stands in the country is not limited in any way. You can make whatever joke you want. You're at no risk of getting fined or jailed for it. Um, you can say awful mean things to people. Um, however, you're not free from the social repercussions that come along with saying that. If I said um, every name to you in the book and everyone heard that on your show and people hated me, I have no right to get upset about that because I said horrible, awful things to you. Legally speaking, I can't be prosecuted. But socially speaking, I can absolutely be ostracized. And that's just something you have to be aware of when you go out and you speak your mind. It's just the risk you carry uh, for having opinions or having things that you know you want to say uh, and get out there. Um, but along with that, uh, of course, the First Amendment also covers things beyond speech, the freedom of the press, the freedom of the uh, freedom of assembly uh, to petition your government, freedom of religion. Uh, I think all of those things are incredibly important. It's what we're founded upon. It's why it's the First Amendment. But you also have a responsibility not to take that too far uh, and, and use that uh, to infringe on the rights of other people. I think that goes with uh, with every single amendment, every amendment that you have, every freedom you um, you have that's recognized by our government. Um, you have a responsibility to use that for your own benefit and the benefit of others, uh, if you can, if you feel so inclined. But uh, one responsibility you absolutely have that I don't think anyone on either side of the aisle would deny is that you have a responsibility to make sure you're not infringing or taking away the rights of others. Um, I have a sign in my room that says disrupting speech is fascism. There are a lot of people on the left that, that smash Trump for being a fascist, that smash all these Republicans for being a fascist. I have fascism, too. I just think we define what constitutes being a fascist rather differently. Uh, so, sorry, that was a little long-winded, but that's my answer for just uh, being aware of your, your freedoms. Thank you. So I know for, um, for a lot of people, so-called conservative ideals or right-leaning ideals come from sort of a religious place or they come from a religious conviction. Is that the case for you? Um, and if so, can you kind of talk about that? If there's any interplay between, you know, I, I don't I have no idea if you're a person of faith or not, but if you are, how has that informed your politics? Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm a, I identify as Catholic, uh, Christian Catholic. Um, I think, yes, my uh, many of my uh, political ideas, many of my uh, my beliefs are founded and rooted in my my faith, my upbringing uh, in a Christian household as a, a man of faith. Um and to be honest with you, uh, I think that's true for any American, regardless of, of whether or not uh, they identify as Christian or uh, what religion or lack thereof they identify with. Uh, funny enough, uh, Andrew Claven, when he came and spoke, his entire speech was on this, that uh, the idea of a secular state is inherently a Christian idea. That before Christianity came about, there, there was no concept of the separation of church and state, the, uh, the render uh, what is Caesar's unto Caesar and uh, God what is God's. Um, it was it was a completely original idea from, from Christianity in the Bible. Um, and so whether you identify as Christian or atheist or uh, Muslim or, or Jewish uh, or any religion that exists, um, uh, I think if you live in America and you've been raised in America, uh, there's really no way around um, the idea that you were shaped by fundamentally Christian ideals that the founding fathers created for this country uh, and that other people who helped build this country up from the ground, uh, had in mind for the country. Um, ideas like the separation of church and state, the idea of um, not being quick to judge other people. I think they're equally on the left and the right. We believe that, that you know, don't throw stones in glass houses. Uh, he used out sin, should throw the first stone. Uh, those are ideas that I consider important to myself. And I think, you know, what are my political ideas? And I think that for a lot of people, whether they realize it or not, uh, have very similar ideas that come from Christianity. So uh, 
Short answer, yes, I believe that my my faith <laughs> has shaped my uh, my uh, political ideology uh, as well as uh, many other people's, uh, whether they know it or not. Do you think there's a way to sort of arrive at some of the same political positions that you hold in, in terms of? Is, I guess what I'm saying is, is there is there a place in yeah or in you know the sort of right leaning people for those who maybe don't have any sort of religious background or maybe even despise religion generally is there is there a place in in the conservative political sphere for people who are very vehemently against the idea of god oh absolutely uh, i think um personally call me biased i would um, that there's a place for anyone who wants to have their mind uh, spoken, have their voice heard in Yaf, in the conservative realm. Uh, I believe, um, and I wish I could say with 100% certainty uh, this for all of my colleagues, but I personally, as a conservative, believe that a free marketplace for the exchange of ideas is the most fundamental and important thing we can have for this country in order to better understand uh, each other and ourselves. And that if you are vehemently against religion, if you absolutely, you know, hate the righties, uh, it's it's still important to, you know, come out, speak your mind. Let's talk about why you feel that way. Let's talk about when, where and how you arrived at the conclusions you've come to. Uh, it's important that we uh, as people with free speech don't use that to say, hey, your ideas suck. You shouldn't have those ideas. You should have these ideas, but rather to ask and allow other people to express and exercise their rights of free, free speech. Excuse me. Um, why do you feel this way? Educate me on why you believe what you believe. And then if you'll allow me, I'll do the same and we can better understand each other. There's no reason to yell at each other um, just right out of the gate. Um, of course, I think if you want to yell at someone, you know, you can yell at someone. You have that right. I'm not going to lie. I've watched Ben Shapiro videos. It's pretty it's pretty fun to watch people rip each other to shreds. It's just, it's just not civil. It's not productive. You know, it's fun for entertainment purposes. It's fun to go to the Coliseum and watch people, you know, uh, show the audience each other's body parts. But when you get to politics, there's no productivity in that. And I think if we're really here to make our country a better place for everyone, whether you're left or right, whether you uh, believe in God or not, whether you believe in multiple gods or not, um, whether you think the idea of religion in general is stupid, uh, it's important for us to be able to speak our minds and know that at the end of the day, we can get together and laugh about it and start again tomorrow and be just as productive every day. So, yeah, I think in, in short, Yaf and the conservative um, uh, realm are both places where I believe anyone should be allowed to have a place and, and speak their minds. Great. Thank you. Uh, with just a couple of minutes that we have left, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about the club for the benefit of those who may be listening, who might be interested? Um what do you guys do? Where and when do you meet? What sorts of activities do you do? Um, of course. Um, well, I'm part of uh, YAF, as we said at the beginning. Uh, YAF, Young Americans for Freedom. Um, we are an official recognized club. We get together once a week for an hour uh, and we discuss how we're feeling about politics, how we're feeling about uh, current policies being enacted, uh, any predictions we might have for um, elections and such. Um Again, we don't endorse uh, candidates. We don't necessarily uh, align uh, ourselves with either political party, uh, though obviously we do have uh, biases towards the Republican Party that we share more values. Uh, and essentially the goal is to, to get yourself heard, to get yourself educated in what's going on uh, and understand that uh, if you need it, if you want it, if you're interested, there are places for those with right-leaning ideologies to be supported and heard and, and in some cases agreed with. 
Thank you. Uh, and last question that we always ask of all of our guests here, Zach, what is one thing that you wish other people better understood about Young Americans for Freedom? Um, we're not Republican. That's that's all I that's all I we're not Republican. If you're not a Republican, you don't need to feel shy about coming to YAF. We will love you anyway. Great. Thank you. Um, Zach Zelnio, Vice President of the Iowa State Chapter of yes, Young sir. Americans for Freedom. Thanks so much for being on the show. Really Absolutely. appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Big, big thank you to Zach for your thoughts and your input. Next up, we have Andre from the Iowa State Marxist Organization. Well, I just want to thank you, first of all, Andre, for agreeing to be on the show. Um, I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to this interview. Um, I'm hoping you can shed some light on what is uh, a topic that has a lot of people worked up, as I'm sure you're aware, um, and just kind of get things from from your point of view. So let me just ask you, first of all, Andre, and, and you know, like, like I said in the introduction, you are uh, from the... Uh, the Marxist organization at Iowa State University. Um, why don't you just explain for us and for the audience, first of all, what what is Marxism? What what's what what does that even mean? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here, and it's great to meet you as well. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to explain. How long are you willing to let me talk? Like a five minute explanation? As long or, or as short as you want to be. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll try to I'll try to be concise, but hit the some of the main things. So I want to say off the bat that there's a lot of political diversity and distance between views under this umbrella of Marxism, but maybe more than there is outside of it, which might sound surprising. And I spent most of my life outside of it. So that's that's the impression I've got now, having been in it for uh, some time. Um, so I can't and I don't speak for anyone but myself, uh, but common denominator Marxism is like a philosophical framework used to analyze whatever you want to analyze, say, oftentimes historical phenomena, political economic phenomena, um, how history develops, what the factors of that development are. And at the core, uh, we kind of see history as a sequence of advancements in how social production is organized. So Marxism kind of gives you tools to understand class society really intimately Um and class society makes up a pretty recent small part of history. Um, and to do this fundamentally through a so-called uh, materialist lens, one which kind of uh, looks at the, the way that production is organized in the society as the primary determining force in how it develops, um, and thereby uh, looks at class as like a determining factor and all that. So uh, one aspect of that is that like for Marxist politics, generally speaking, answers to economics. So what Marx did was identify this really basic, fundamental, inherent economic tendency towards crisis in the capitalist mode of production under perfect conditions in a way that implies logically that the same tendency holds for less than perfect versions of capitalism, you know, like the one we live in. Um, and we have the tool of uh, class analysis that doesn't depend on beliefs, opinions, ideological predispositions, etc. So like... Uh, we think of class as a matter of fact about a person's relationship to production. So I can fantasize that I'm a capitalist. I can be so-called pro-capitalist. I can be personally happy with my life. But none of those things affect the fact that in order for me to be able to exist next month, I have to sell my labor power to get a wage and reproduce my conditions of existence so I don't die in the gutter. And likewise, a billionaire's humbleness doesn't affect the fact that their conditions of life 
are reproduced through the, the surplus value, as we call it, that, that is extracted from the labor process during production, which is predominantly not their labor, even if sometimes they perform, say, some managerial administrative function. And we think that difference uh, between classes is the fundamental antagonism uh, between uh, the fundamental antagonism of class society, uh, capitalist class society. Um, but uh, it, there's, there's more to Marxism than that. Like I said, it's a framework. It's a method, uh, more or less. Um, Marxism is really open about the fact that it has this underlying philosophy that we call materialist dialectics, which is kind of the, the method of Marxism. Um, it's also the implicit method of a lot of non-Marxists, especially natural scientists, even if they don't really uh, think of it out loud in this way that we do. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, Marxism, uh, I think, in really open and honest fashion, in my opinion, uh, talks about this kind of underlying philosophy out loud. And materialism, loosely speaking, kind of refers to the notion that when you're analyzing anything, you should be looking at the material forces that are governing it, not ideas about it that you feel like government. For example, uh, the political pursuit of raising the minimum wage uh, to some amount uh, answers to the economic matter of fact about whether or not it's economically possible to do it first. And then you can think about the political will of some group that really strongly believes in this even if that political will has to factor in to make this actually happen. So you can't legislate, uh, for example, uh, legislate into place something if the economic forces don't allow it on the terms of their own logic. Similarly, you know, you can really like market society, but that doesn't mean market society works in the sense of allocating resources to meet human needs in harmony with the environment and so on. Sorry, uh, were you going to say something? I was just going to ask you, um, just for for the sake of our audience, I know you're um, uh, a, a lot of the thing a lot of things that you're that you're saying are are probably new to a lot of people. Um, just a different way of looking at things. So, could you just define for us real briefly like, what you mean by class? Yeah. Like, so, uh, but, how would how would you how would you define that? So, class uh, fundamentally, the basic definition is it's your relationship to the to uh, the means of production of a society. And the means of production encompasses all of the, uh, all of the uh, capital that goes into making things, all of the uh, machinery, factories, tools, uh, all of that stuff, access. Um, so you and I have a particular relationship to that stuff in general, which is that we can work with it, but we uh, do that on a contract of selling our labor not on the basis of ownership of that stuff. And then the class of producers, uh, the, the, I mean, the class, uh, the capitalist class, properly speaking, um, is defined by a different relationship to that stuff in the sense that they're owners who hire wage labor to work those tools and machinery and factories in order to produce commodities. Okay. And again, just because there's, you know, d depending on, what society we're talking about, you know, the, the, the definition of class or, or caste, I guess would be different. Would you consider those to be flexible categories? Like can people move between classes or are these like sort of fixed, like you're in this class and that's just who you are for life? Like how, how rigid of a definition is this? Yeah. So it's uh, that's a great question. It's a, it's not an ideological definition in the sense that uh, sometimes caste might be taken to be, and I'm no expert. So 
Um, I, I definitely can't talk about caste in much detail, but my understanding of it is that caste is often like a, a religiously or otherwise ideologically imposed thing. Class is not ideological in any facet. It's a matter of fact, right? Uh, like I mentioned, you can think that you can be pro-capitalist. You can really love Jeff Bezos or whatever. It doesn't change the fact that for you to exist next month and not die in the gutter, you you better sell your labor power for a wage um, and, and make a wage and pay your rent and buy food and so on. Um, okay. So when you, when you say class, you're basically talking about a person's current, um, I guess, economic status and not so much maybe where they've been, where they're going, or where you or anyone else thinks they should be. It's simply a description of their status as it is right now. Exactly. Yeah. And, is that and, correct? Okay. Yeah. And overwhelmingly, it's not going to change for pretty much anyone. And it hardly ever does. So even though there's okay. there's exceptions to the rule that people do stay in their class from the beginning to the end of their life, um, those exceptions really exist in order to facilitate a certain like, uh, I mean, they exist as a consequence of what markets are, right? Some people have some mobility. Once in a while, someone gets lucky, but almost nobody does. So you you said at the beginning that you you um, you didn't used to consider yourself a, a Marxist. That this is sort of a new thing that you discovered later in life. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like how you first encountered some of these ideas, what drew you to them, um, and how this this framework, as you call it, of viewing things through the lens of class analysis, like how has that changed the way you view other things? Can you kind of walk me through sort of your biography of how you encountered this? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, I Personally, I first encountered Marx when I was uh, an undergraduate in, uh, at Iowa State um, in a philosophy class. And it's the only philosophy class that I know of where Marx is brought up. And we read part one of uh, we, we read part of one of his most well-known works, uh, Capital, volume one. I liked it, but we didn't really go very deep into it. And I wasn't particularly convinced that it meant anything. Um, and, uh, in university settings, usually the political stuff of Marxism is not brought up at all. So even if by chance, uh, Marx comes up somewhere, it's not with an eye to the, the normative or political aspects of the ideas. So I came back to the book a few years later. I started to take it a little more seriously when I was working in industry after college. I was pretty disenchanted with a lot of like liberal activism. I thought liberal activism wasn't really succeeding at winning the things it claimed to want at the time. And I was kind of tired of uh, what I saw as a bit of an attitude that we just have to do something. You know, the world is bad, so we got to go do something. Um, you know, like almost like checking off a box to say that, hey, I did my part. Now it's OK that the world's falling apart. And um, all of that stuff was kind of bearing down on me. And I was like, well, maybe we need a more serious political approach, um, a more systematic one. So what what was I guess what was different for you when you when you sort of started to have that realization like maybe this this is something that needs to be taken more seriously like what were were there other opinions or other positions or beliefs that you had that started to change as a result like what kind of walk me through this I guess sort of the transformation process if that makes sense like how has this affected your viewpoint on on other things yeah, absolutely. Um, my beliefs kind of prior to becoming a Marxist were uh, 
um, kind of standard, like progressive liberal beliefs. Um, when I was in high school, I mean, even towards the age of like 19, embarrassingly enough, I had very little worldview at all. Um, I didn't really think about stuff very much at all. Um, and then somehow I got peppered with enough experiences that, you know, caring, <laughs> caring about others, caring about my society became a part of life. And the default framework that, uh, that most people jump into and I did too is liberalism. Um, and so this idea that as long as you adjust the institutions in society properly, then, um, you don't have to quite worry about capital and the market and all that stuff. But if you, if you have the right institutions, then everyone will be taken care of adequately and have opportunity adequately, adequately and so on. So the, the classic thinker in this regard is John Rawls. I was really into him. Um, and, and the, the question that kind of reared its head was who's going to go and actually cause this to happen. There's a lot of proposals in this uh, giant book that I dedicated time to, and it's, it's unclear to me who's going to go and fight for this and cause it to become reality. And I just kind of followed that thread all the way to the end, which was, uh, I guess, having to revise that entire approach to thinking about the world. And um, Marxism had a an appeal due to its history of uh, organizing organizing a whole class, um, you know, kind of identifying um, political theory with political action, um, and that was attractive to me. So that was kind of the the fundamental turning point. So you've kind of always had this this desire to improve the well being of of the people around you, um, and you recognized in the ideas as in the, and, and in the history of Marxism, that there's something here that, you know, takes this, this desire to, to do well for people specifically to make sure that everybody has their basic needs met and actually puts it into action instead of just talking about it or instead of, you know, doing just enough of this do-goodership to make ourselves feel good, but actually, strives for results is that sort of an accurate summary of kind of what drew you to this i hope so i mean uh i think everyone has their own unique individual pathology too that attracts them to certain kinds of thinking and activity anyway and i'm sure i have that in addition to it um so it's not all such uh i don't want to make it out like it's some very selfless pursuit um i have my own interest in it too but but the thing that attracted me to Marxism specifically was that uh, there's no substitution. Um, there's no way for me um, as someone who likes these ideas within the context of these ideas to substitute my behaviors for the behaviors of the whole class that I'm fighting for. And I thought that was a really, really uh, effective component and a nice component of these ideas that the onus is on the class itself to transform uh, history, to transform society. Um, and so it, it kind of forces you out of any paternalistic thinking about politics, um, if that makes sense. Sure. Let me, um, let me just go ahead and, uh, and tackle what is probably the elephant in the room for most of our audience. Um, and I want to give you as, as much time as you need to, to address this. So most people, um, when they 
hear Marxism, they will associate it with things like socialism, like communism. Um, Of course, Marx um, authored the Communist Manifesto. And if they've even heard the word Marxism, most people have a very, a very particular image that comes to mind of a, of a, of a very totalitarian, authoritarian, even brutal and oppressive state that comes to mind. You know, that's kind of the history that comes to mind. People think of things like, you know, the Soviet Union and all of the the things that we know that happened there, you know, the gulags, starvation in Ukraine. People think of the Great Leap Forward in China and, you know, the starvation that happened there. You know, I mean, this this is the sort of things that, that come to people's heads when they think of Marxism. So... I, I guess my my question is how if if and when people come to you and they, and they say you know how could you support Marxism because of you know look at the results that it brings in in the countries that try it like how do, how do you respond to that how do you sort of address that question Yeah, great question. Um, it depends on the person how I respond to that, but uh, any legitimate response to that question takes time, and that's the thing I try to emphasize is that uh, we can't communicate really complex things telepathically. I don't know anyone who can, um, nor violate the laws of information. So there's a lot of things in history that we owe, and I'm open about this and clear uh, whenever I can be, we owe explanations about those phenomena, those historical events, but we can't compress it arbitrarily. So you're only going to get an actual explanation from us about it by engaging with us for more than 30 minutes. Right. Um, so, you know, one thing I wish, uh, one thing I try to communicate clearly is that, uh, the only way to get to know our views on these things is by reading, uh, about history with us and having those discussions with us. And we emphasize uh, that part of what we, part of what we do is help people learn that stuff by doing that collective education. Um, but yeah, no, there's no excuses to be made. Another thing is, uh, we don't identify our ideas with the ideas of Stalinism. And it's difficult a lot of the time when a person walks into the room thinking Marxism means you like Stalin, you like Mao, and you like every Marxist leader. So, you know, supposedly Marxist communist leader that there's been in history and you are duty bound to defend them. And that's not the case. So uh, Stalin was in addition to innumerable other crimes responsible for purging much of um, the political lineage that we belong to, the, the Bolshevik um, political lineage. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, without getting bogged down in the details too much, if somebody uh, I made an uh, effort to identify our ideas with the ideas of, say, Stalin, for example, we do get to just say no to that because those are not our ideas. Those are not our politics. We have a wealth of literature on this topic that distinguishes uh, Marxism and the ideas of Marx and Engels and even Lenin from the ideas of Stalinism. Um, even if there are also Marxists out there who, for whatever reason, feel compelled to defend Stalinism. Um, and there are, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, my approach is kind of the following. Like there are, there are innumerable right wingers out there who are wrong about Hayek's ideas. And we don't criticize Hayek from the left on the basis of the worst elements of his tradition. So we find it similarly unfair to criticize uh, Marxism based on the worst elements or the failures uh, of the Marxist tradition. Um, 
there's obviously a, a lot more uh, complicated nuance to add to this. And anyone who wants that nuance, who rightfully considers my response inadequate, and it is inadequate, should uh, reach out and talk to us about it. And we'd be happy to explain in more detail. Okay, thank you. One response that that I often hear um, from from some of the critics of Marxism to what you're talking about it it because it, it, it sounds like essentially what you're saying is um, a lot of those negative things that people associate with the ideas of Karl Marx that that's not real Marxism like that's a perversion of the ideas that we're talking about right so one of the one of the responses that that I often hear when I'm you know listening to to people talk about this is. In, and, and you can please correct me if I'm wrong. That the one of the, one of the central tenets of the ideas of Marxism is that, as opposed to private ownership of the means of production, you know, whether that's a, a factory or a farm or you know any any tool, who, whoever it is that owns whatever is being used to produce things that the society needs, rather than having those be owned privately that the, the state or the government or the community or whatever you want to call it owns it. Um, and so one of, one of the criticisms that I often hear is to make that transition from private to state ownership, you would basically have to confiscate people's goods. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the things that makes a lot of people nervous about this is they're they're looking at what you know what what you're describing with um the the class as a whole making a change and essentially taking over ownership of these things that it it, you know it it feels like theft to people who have become accustomed to the concept of private ownership does does that make sense so like how would how do you address that like let's say i'm i'm a farmer you know, and maybe I'm not even an especially wealthy farmer, and maybe I don't have a whole lot of people working for me, or maybe I just work it on my own. And for someone to suggest, like, rather than you owning the farm yourself, the state will own your farm, and you can still work there, but it doesn't belong to you anymore. Like, you see how, like, that that wouldn't sit well with somebody even you know even if they wouldn't consider themselves one of the one of the wealthier classes so like how do you how would you address that concern if that makes sense cuz yeah. you, you know no no matter no matter where you are you know it it can feel like a loss of freedom a loss of liberty if if that makes sense like how do you address that concern yeah, no, that's a that's a perfectly reasonable concern to have, um, at least on the basis of not not having an intimacy with Marx's own works. Um, Marx, I think, goes into a lot of detail on this kind of thing, but uh, Marx also doesn't have too much of an explanation of what socialism itself is. So there's uh, there's the critique of capital, and then uh, some of the later books didn't get written, um, and he did plan to have books that explain, uh, you know, what a decent society looks like too. Um, as well as a theory of the state. But uh, to answer some of those points, um, you know, when we think of theft in the Marxist tradition, um, the, the seizure of, uh, say, a factory by the workers who produce goods in that factory, um, it's, it's, uh, theft isn't the category for it. It's, it's basically uh, workers who are responsible for the outputs of that factory, um, taking control of it and uh, 
basically seizing the administrative functions as well as the ownership function. Um, but but if there's a theft going on, it's on the part of the person who uh, uses constant capital, uses the tools and machinery of that factory to exploit the wage laborers who are the only ones actually contributing new economic value in the production of those commodities. So maybe it's a bit of a technical point and it's not really the, the point that I want to pick a fight over. Um, but that's what we think is going on there. So, so the category of theft is, is in my opinion, an odd one. But um, in addition, I mean, one big point worth making is we don't support uh, some kind of authoritarian unilateral state ownership, um, kind of uh, more similar to what you would think of in the Soviet Union. Uh, we support workers' control of production uh, through a democratic e economic process. And that is, of course, up to, uh, the, in some ways, unfortunately, the contingency of history and the real movement uh, of the class to decide um, the, the, all the little nuances of what that looks like. Um, but it's definitely not a state unilaterally uh, owning as a state or as a bureauc bureaucracy within uh, the state apparatus owning all of the factories, all of the uh, tools of production and so on, and then similarly extracting a surplus out of the workers just the same way that the capitalists did. So, uh, yeah, we call for uh, collective ownership of production and collective uh, democratic decision-making about the aims of that production. Um, the, uh, the other point here is that uh, this kind of transition happens on a micro scale pretty often. It's happened in the United States too. Uh, during the uh, 1934 Minneapolis Teamsters strike, uh, Soviets appeared, workers' councils as such appeared. Uh, those workers' councils were organically able to uh, coordinate production um, while waging a, uh, a, a class fight with the, the uh, owners of those factories. Um, and so this was a very successful strike in American history and kind of, in our opinion, forms a pretty good model of what it means for workers to uh, make make democratic economic decisions in concert with one another and why the, uh, the, uh, the current owning class doesn't actually play such a necessary function in all of this. To answer the question about, uh, say, you know, small businesses or farmers, I think that's a complicated question. Um, those forms of production, small business production, trade, uh, artisan farming uh, type things are really historical relics from older class societies like feudalism. Um, so they're already in this very compromised position under capitalism, as we know, right? Giant corporations can push small businesses out. Um, similarly, the, uh, the impetus to, to pay a, 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 a decent living wage to workers in these circumstances often doesn't get met. And so small businesses are often unable to pay a normal wage to, to their employees um, and are often in a precarious position. But to me... And this is, of course, my personal hypothetical. I'm not I wouldn't try to put this on anybody else. To me, it seems reasonable that a workers government would be able to subsidize those things based on the need for those things. Um, you don't need to leave it to market forces to appraise whether a farm is a necessary uh, element of a society or community. Um, you can rationally appraise whether that farm is a necessary element of the society and community and then make a decision about how you're going to uh, cause it to, uh, you know, work effectively, whether you're going to give it subsidies, whether you're going to, uh, whether the workers uh, government or whether regional or national is going to give it uh, resources to do what it does. And 
yeah, of course, uh, a certain kind of um, may, maybe along with the scheme, a certain kind of I don't want to call it meaningless, but a certain kind of freedom is lost uh, where something that isn't socially necessary can continue to exist just due to the accident of, of uh, market forces. But um, in, a, in a decent world, it seems like to me, uh, production would be based on what people want and need. And if it's the case that you're a small business owner under capitalism and your community finds you valuable, then your community will be empowered to actually help you continue to exist um, and exist in the way that causes your employees to be paid an adequate wage and given benefits and so on. And under market forces, that's not the case. And, and it seems to me that the collective control workers control of production is a much better answer to that question. Let me just on a, on a more personal level here. Um, what, what sort of interactions do you have personally with people when you're discussing these political or economic issues? Um, and, uh, you know, specifically when, when the, the appellation or the, the label of Marxist gets applied to you in a public setting, how does, how does that influence your interactions with other people? Have you faced any kind of animosity or antagonism because of your association with the Marxist organization? Yeah, we definitely get some antagonism, but it's uh, it's not the norm by any means. Um, I'd say the majority of people who interact with us at all are sympathetic, even if they don't want to be involved. They uh, they find it interesting, at least, um, if not good, that we're around. And I'm thinking mainly here, like tabling on campus or something like that. Um, we, of course, get some hecklers. Everyone gets hecklers. If you have any beliefs at all, you're going to have hecklers. Um, but they're really not difficult to deal with and nobody has been um, violent or anything like that that we've had to respond to. Um, so yeah, there's some antagonism there. It's predominantly from people who just have no exposure at all. You know, people grow up thinking they know and they don't really know. Um, and in, in the United States, there's no reason why anyone would know because nobody reads Marx in the United States in, uh, in your K through 12 education, you study liberalism, you study the liberal form of government, you study market society as you grow up. Um, and then to be exposed to, uh, you know, these weird Marxists on the corner with their little magazine, um, and only having, you know, the, your 11th grade, one month of history about World War II and how there's this evil, so-called, uh, supposedly Marxist society out there that, um, that hates everything that makes America, America, then the inclination to be shocked and disgusted by that makes some sense. But again, part of what we try to do is uh, invite those people to talk with us about our ideas so that they don't have a caricature in their minds of what those ideas are. And uh, so that we don't have to make concessions to things that aren't true about us. So for people who do want to learn more and do want to get a more full understanding of what you guys are all about. Um, how can, how can they contact you guys, um, have discussions with, with the organization? Um, you know, where, where can, where can they go to learn more? So the first thing to do would be, uh, check out socialistrevolution.org. Um, like I mentioned, I'm a member of the international Marxist tendency. That's the website of our, um, United States section of that organization. And that's the section we're working on building. We have political analysis there, uh, economic, uh, whatever. 
Um, and then check out marxist.com. That's our international sections website. We have uh, lengthy articles that explain anything you want to learn about in there. And, and if you like what's on there, then reach out. Um, I would also be happy to have one-on-one -on -one discussions with people. Any of us would be. Um, if you have questions, um, especially uh, the questions, the great questions that were asked in this interview that I didn't give adequate answers to because finite time, um, we'd be happy to answer those questions in a lot, a lot, lot, lot more detail um, if anyone's interested. So um, that's what I suggest. Well, thank you. Um, and again, this this has been Andre Yenitz uh, from the Iowa State uh, Marxist Organization. Andre, last question that we always ask of all of our guests. What is one thing that you wish people better understood about Marxists? <laughs> uh, that's a hard question. But um, I guess uh, in summary, what I'd say is you have to talk to us and read if you want to understand our views on things and why we have them. We have this fundamental asymmetry between what politics is for us and what politics is um, in the U.S. in general. That 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 in that kind of growing up, you can just passively absorb politics through your education and the media and so on. You can't passively absorb Marxism because it's not in the media. It's not in your education system. So the way to understand what we think is to talk to us and read the parts of the, the canonical works of our political tradition. And then you'll you'll know for yourself whether you think it's good or, or stupid or whatever. And if you don't agree, fine by me, so be it. But at least you get to know what we actually think. And um, that happens through working together to understand that stuff. So that's that's what I'd say is the thing I wish people knew. Great. Thank you. Uh, Andre, thanks for your time. Thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It was great to talk to you. And yeah, thank you. A big, big thank you to Andre for your input, your insight, and taking the time to, to share your thoughts with us. Now, guys, I know that when you have very strong feelings or very strong opinions on something, it can be super hard not to be combative and not to be angry or upset with those who just don't seem to be able to see things the same way that you do. Remember, though, that it is a good thing that there are people in the world who see things differently than we do and that we need them as part of our communities. So remember to be grateful for people who can see things differently. And even though we may disagree, I am a strong believer in the value of firm debate and the conflict of ideas and how that strengthens everybody involved if it's done properly. Just remember to be careful and remember that the people you're talking with are still people. They are still human beings who deserve your respect, no matter who they are, no matter what they think, and no matter if they reciprocate that respect. Now, whether you are a Christian or not, I think we can all benefit from the words of Jesus when he said, if you salute your brethren only, what reward have ye? In other words, if you are only kind and decent and respectful to the people who are kind and decent and respectful to you, big deal. What do you want a medal? Anybody can do that. If we really want progress, if we really want to end the division and bring harmony to our communities, to our families, and to our nation, we have to be willing to extend the listening ear and to consider carefully the opinions and the experiences and the thoughts of those 
who don't agree with us and who see things differently. And I think if we do that, we will like what happens. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Bury the Hatchet. I hope you've learned something today to help you better understand the people in your life, especially those you disagree with. For suggestions or questions about the show, shoot me an email at podcastburythehatchet at gmail.com. Again, that's podcastburythehatchet at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.